Hi, I'm Steven. And I'm Jake. Welcome to Tales from the SaaS Graveyard, where we talk to employees at tech companies that are in the middle of the bell curve. Not going out of business, but definitely not hitting the big time. The SaaS Graveyard is a purgatory populated by companies that have made to annual revenues in the 30 to 50 million range, but can't get to the next level, which is pretty impressive outside of Silicon Valley, but frowned upon here. We interview folks in various roles about their experience working at companies like this. We're looking to see what common themes emerge across industries and roles. Today, we'll be talking with our friend Lauren, who had a couple of different roles at a company we will call Circle. With over 200 employees, Circle was a competitor to Square with a focus on the restaurant industry. This was Lauren's first real job out of school. So Stephen, what was your first job out of school and what was it like? Well, my first job out of school is very similar to, to what I do now. So I got a product manager role at a Fortune 500 company, and I've been a product manager ever since. But I think the big thing with your first role, Jake, is you learn a lot of things you don't really like about what you're doing. And the thing about this company, I learned that Waterfall is way too slow for shipping software, uh, which I didn't get a full grasp on how slow it was until I worked at a company that was much smaller to see how fast we were shipping. So that's something I learned I really didn't like was shipping software slow. Um, I also like work a lot better. Like I was surprised on how much more autonomy you have. Like after college, like it's pretty relaxed and free. But when you're in high school, you have this idea of like what it means to go to quote unquote work because you're sitting in lecture all day. You're going to have to write in cursive. Your teachers are very strict where the corporate world, as long as you generally get your work done and you're presentable, things are going pretty well. Uh, for you. It's not, not too stressful. As long as you're making focus on making money for the company, things are good. If anything, I would say things are a little less strict, a lot less strict than I was expecting at this company because I used to wear a tie every day in college. But when I started working there, everyone looked at me like I was very weird for wearing a tie. Um, and they thought I was very strange for doing that. So I actually stopped wearing a tie when I when I joined this company. What, what, what about you, Jake? Well, I think, you know, that the whole business about the tie is very much focused on the tech world, that there are some industries where you still are expected to wear a tie. And so my actually my first job out of college was in finance and I did have to wear a tie. And I remember that just as my first job out of school, it felt very I felt very stifled. I mean, you you had all this freedom and autonomy, but I felt very stifled just having to be somewhere for 40 hours a week where, you know, college, you maybe have like 15 hours worth of classes a week and then you get to do whatever you want the rest of the week. And you, and so having to be somewhere in the same desk from nine to five just felt, um, it felt rough to me. Uh, but eventually I got used to it and I did like the, my job. There was like sort of constant work to do. So the day did move pretty fast because you were always working. And that's something to this day that I like is when there's a job where I don't have a lot of work or I'm a little bored, I go a little stir crazy and I, I stopped doing the work that I have, even though I have plenty of time to do it. I, I work much better in an environment if I'm like really busy. Um, but my biggest takeaway from this first role uh, was that I didn't like finance. Um, I took the job out of college because I always enjoyed working with numbers. And so I thought I'd like this. But I realized like, no, I just I get zero fulfillment out of this. And mm-hmm. so my career has really been looking for things uh, as far away from that. As how I finally ended up as a podcast host, which is, you know, the complete 180 from finance. Well, enough about us. Let's hear about uh, Lauren's first role. Lauren, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get started. How did you end up at Circle? So when I joined this company, I was actually fresh out of college. 
I went to school, I studied hotel administration. So my main focus had been restaurants, restaurant development, a lot of work on the culinary side as well. So that's what I thought I would go do. And mm-hmm. I was working in restaurants right after school, managing, operating, hiring people, negotiating with food vendors, doing the whole nine yards. And ultimately it wasn't really fulfilling me. It wasn't really how I wanted to spend my time. So I found this job because I wanted to be more on the business end of the industry. So this company was helping restaurants theoretically, helping them streamline operations, take payments more successfully. And it seemed pretty revolutionary because a lot of restaurant technology was server-based and this was one of the first cloud-based systems. So to me, it felt like a really cool opportunity and interesting time to join and sort of switch from being an operator to being somebody who was helping develop technology to make the industry a little bit more streamlined. Got it. And when, so when you were in restaurant operations, did you have interactions with this company already or was it more that you were looking for a job and you, you stumbled upon them in your research? I have to say one of my main pain points was setting up the point of sale system in the restaurant. And it was this clunky server-based technology. And we had one day where the system, it just blew out. Like the server just, it stopped working. It was on premise in the basement. And we basically lost all of our payments for for the day and then had to send the system out to go be repaired. So we couldn't take payments for a period of time. And that was just extremely aggravating. And to me, it was just kind of really top of mind. And then eventually sort of in my journey, I, I stumbled across this company, kind of re- remembered the experience I had gone through. And I imagine so many other people in the restaurant industry have gone through as well and thought it was a pretty bright and revolutionary idea um, to bring all this restaurant technology into the cloud and to basically have the ability to take payments wherever, whenever. Got it. So um, were you then actively looking for jobs or did you just decide like, hey, this just sounds really cool. I want to reach out to them. I was actively looking. So I left my job in the restaurant world. I was sort of taking time to kind of decide, okay, what is it that I really want to do? Do I want to go to law school? Do I want to go into banking? Do I want to do all the things that everyone else that I'd gone to university with was winding up doing and being successful at? And I kind of took a look at myself and I said, here's what I'm passionate about. Here's what my skills are. I should really continue to focus on the industry that I love, but find a way to do it that engages my mind more. And mm-hmm. I found this opportunity on a job site called AngelList, which is like the LinkedIn for startups. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how active that site is these days, but it was it was pretty hot about you know five or so years ago. And so I found the job on this site and it just seemed really aligned to what I wanted to do. I submitted my resume. I got an interview. And I think like two to three interviews later, I basically had the job and moved my whole life from the East Coast over to San Francisco. So you moved out to San Francisco specifically for this role? Specifically for this role. I only knew one other person and maybe two people in San Francisco. Um, Just packed literally two suitcases, found a random apartment on Craigslist, um, and just, you know, took off. I mean, I was in my early, early 20s. I was super, super naive. And I was just ready to take a shot and try something new and something that was actually, quite frankly, pretty unexpected for me. I never thought I would wind up in tech. Now, so you, you mentioned that, you know, from your experience working in the restaurant industry, you you realized that this was a, a, a good product. During the interview process, what is it that drew you to Circle? I'm not really sure. I mean, the process was so quick. I didn't really think twice about it. I think I interviewed twice with the woman who had become my boss. And I had, I think, one interview with more of a lateral teammate. And then I had one very brief phone call with the CEO. 
um, part of it actually to me that was so exciting is that the CEO was a female. So this is a female founded tech company that was poised to be super successful. And being the feminist that I am, it just it sounded really intriguing to work for one, a female boss and two, um, female leadership. And so that was something that was exciting and inspiring. And so um, I thought that, you know, how, how could I possibly go wrong? Now, did you have any reservations or were you 100% this is the right move for me? I mean, I was I was so young at the time. I was just pretty gung-ho about it. It sounded great. It got me to a new city. It got me to California, which is a place I'd always wanted to live even ever since I was young. Um, so yeah, I didn't really have any reservations. I mean, tech just sounded like this bright, shiny thing to get involved in. And um, you know, coming out of a hotel school program, not a lot of people were doing it. People went into real estate specific to hotels. People became operators in the hotel and restaurant world. But was anyone really going into tech? No, I thought I had to strike out, you know, be the one that was different, kind of beat to my own drum and and try this different thing. I just I didn't even hold back. I just leapt and went for it. Now, so it sounds great that you had no reservations. If you could go back in time, are there any questions you wish you would have asked during the the interview process? Absolutely. I think, you know, some of the things that I uncovered in my time there um, are not things that anyone would have been honest about in an interview process. I think I would have asked more about the day-to-day of the job. I probably did and probably got a false answer, to be honest. Um, I think I would have asked more about the culture. I think I would have asked probably about like the growth trajectory that they saw in this role. You know, just really standard things that I probably overlooked being so young. And, and just obviously so green. Um, but again, a lot of the things about a job, like you just really don't know until you start that first day and you have that first week, that first month, um, even that first 90 days, like a lot of stuff can come to life that you just could never anticipate in the interview process. Right. Even if people are being 100% honest, there's still, you have to do it to actually know what it's like. Exactly. And especially for me, it was a job I had never done before. Like I'd barely done any jobs besides cook in a restaurant and manage a restaurant and, you know, do a few like one off like marketing internships. Um, I'd, I'd never worked in a tech company, so I didn't know what to expect. I probably should have talked to other people who were already working there or people at other tech companies to kind of see what their Silicon Valley experience was like. I should have like, you know, understood the landscape maybe a bit more, but there is literally nothing that could have prepared me for what I set out to do once I got there. And the role that you were hired for, what what was the title and what were extensively the, the what was the job description? So the way they framed it to me is that I was going to be a client relations manager and I would be working with their clients, predominantly restaurants, to help them optimize their use of the software. So a lot of restaurant owners are, you know, not very data driven. They don't understand technology. So it was, it was basically just to be an educator and to help them implement the software. That's the way this was positioned to me. As I started the job, what I realized I was doing was some lightweight network engineering to help them configure their, their networks because the system ran on its own proprietary network. And then secondarily, it was diffusing litigation. There were a lot of uh, severely unhappy customers that were threatening all sorts of things. And my job was to go into each contract and figure out whether or not that they had grounds to terminate their business with us. So I was handling high-level escalations. I was diffusing the minor ones. And if something was hugely problematic, it was my job to make the call of whether or not it would get surfaced up the change of leadership. Wow. Um, so maybe um, walk us through sort of from how you got one from day one to sort of what you're describing now. Like, what was your first day like? 
So my first day, I was probably just shadowing calls. We had, you know, a couple more tenured teammates and they were just used to doing this job day in and day out. And so I probably was on some lighter weight calls to start, nothing too scary. And it was just kind of, you know, chatting with the client, asking them about their day, just being personable. Um, and then, you know, getting into thick of the issue. And, you know, sometimes it was as simple as they like forgot to like turn on a certain setting or they like needed to enable something to accept payments or they needed to, you know, run some integration to their QuickBooks software. Sometimes it was very, very basic, very, very simple, easy to solve. But other times it wasn't so easy. It was someone whose network had crashed and they still weren't able to take payments. So they lost a whole day of revenue. And in in the world of a restaurant, that's a huge deal, right? We're seeing this with COVID-19. Most restaurants only have 16 days of operating capital before they might go out of business. So to these to these business owners, this was their bread and butter. This was their whole life. Um, so they would get, you know, pretty, pretty hostile. Um, and so we managed everything through Zendesk. We had a ticketing system and, um, you know, the team kind of evolved. I, I did this job for about 10 months before I pivoted to the marketing team at, at Circle. And we kind of started, um, I was more of a restaurant expert. We had some new teammates join us. Um, one who I'm still really close friends with to, to this day. She was a, an expert in retail. So I would take restaurant clients. She would take retail. We shifted at one point to becoming a round robin. We shifted at another point to, you know, kind of owning certain relationships. So it would kind of pivot, but honestly, the day in and the day out, it felt the same of sending emails, you know, directing people to the right places in the product to turn on certain features, getting on the phone, diffusing litigation. Every time, every now and again, we'd actually have to go out to certain clients and meet with them in person. Um, and that was always quite stressful. Um, sometimes we would have to get the head of customer success on the phone with them. Sometimes we would have to get someone even more senior than that. I think we had the CTO on a few calls every now and again. Um, it was it was pretty insane. And our job was just to, you know, cool these people down and convince them to stay on board with us. And we, we were paid basically every time that we were able to retain a client. Like this wasn't client relations. This was client retentions. When you say you were paid every time you retain a client does that mean like you were incentivized beyond your normal salary for like someone not leaving that's correct uh there was a bonus structure i think about like halfway through my time on this team they're like all right we have a retention problem people are churning way too fast so um if the reason code on the ticket was someone trying to churn if you were able to retain that client you would receive a bonus for retaining the client which i don't think is actually too abnormal that's like very par for the course in um, any sort of SaaS technology business, I think, where there are escalation issues. So, Lauren, you, you got this new job. You have a pretty high stress environment that you're working in. But something that Jake and I always like to dig into is a little bit of the office space that you were in. Can you describe the office from the moment you entered the building to when you sat at your desk and kind of the vibe? Definitely. So it was actually really interesting. We had two offices over the span of time I was there. And the first office I was in was really interesting, especially because I spent time on both floors. Um, you'd enter the building and it was a beautiful old blonde brick building um, right between North Beach and the financial district of San Francisco. And it was a shared building with a number of different offices and we had two floors. And so the lower level floor was mostly, it was, it was a quiet floor. So it was the client relations team, it was engineering, and it was some other um, sort of client services and success functions. And um, so, you know, other than the chatter on the phone, it, it wasn't too loud, like not a lot of energy. Um, you know, it, the personalities down there were also just kind of tamer. 
And then you would move up. Our, our other floor was the rooftop of this building. So it was another wide open floor plan, um, meeting rooms kind of flanking the sides of the office space. And then they had actually a big patio. And this was the floor where you had sales and marketing. So this was the party floor. And it was loud. There were people shooting Nerf guns. It was just like always a rager up there. The, uh, the deck outside, it was beautiful. Amazing views of North Beach. We had a barbecue and everything. Um, most afternoons or evenings, you could find people playing beer pong or flip cup. Um, every stereotype you can think about a Silicon Valley tech company, um, you would probably find on that floor. So if you can only imagine, it was it was quite an exciting place um, and a little bit confusing being fresh out of college because you think when you leave college, you leave college, right? Um, but this this top floor was a fraternity party nonstop. Is there something that you're particularly like really proud of, of what you've accomplished there? I was really proud of negotiating my way over into the marketing organization. So um, I tried to leave this company so many times, but something would always pull me back or there'd be a reason to stay or whatever other offer I was getting just wasn't compelling enough. Um, so I actually got an offer from one of the major ride sharing companies and I walked it over to a manager or I'm not even sure who I brought this up to, but I said, hey, I want to be on your marketing team. I have this offer from this ride sharing company. If you do not move me to the marketing team, I will be leaving. And so they wow. said, okay, what can, what can we do for you? And I said, great. Um, I saw you have this one opening. I'd like to interview for it. And they basically just let me have the job. Um, it was just being an analyst on the marketing team, specifically supporting the demand generation function. So acquiring new clients. This is like still a job I feel guilty about in some ways till this day, because basically like we would be bringing on these clients to a software that didn't work super well. Um, so that was a whole interesting thing. But the beautiful thing about that job is that my manager was so hands off. I had the opportunity to self-teach myself like everything about the demand gen world. Like he really didn't care what I was up to. He gave me a few tasks, a few things to get done a week really straightforward stuff. And he basically pointed out, this is what you need to know. Here's Marketo, here's Facebook advertising, here's Google AdWords, go figure it out. And so I just kind of opened up all the systems. I read as much as I humanly possibly could. And over the span of, I would say three months, I just taught myself everything there was to know about demand gen at the time. Um, and so eventually that boss and the other analysts on my team, they decided within a week of each other that they would both be leaving me. And they said, best of luck. Here, here's a $5 million budget. You're going to run this whole system by yourself. Um, <laughs> and so I spent the next year and a half operating that system all by myself. So I think that's really what I'm most proud of um, when it comes to my work at this company is actually re-architecting a lot of the work that they had done um, and then building off of that further to create a really powerful demand generation engine. Now, I have a question. You had this offer from a, a ride-sharing company at the same time. So, and then you, you leverage that to get, you know, a better role within Circle. Did you debate which role to take even after they offered you the, the marketing role, whether to stay or to still go to the ride sharing uh, company? Honestly, I haven't really admitted this, but that was a bluff. I was never <laughs> going to take that ride sharing job. It was another client relations job. And not only that, it was contract work. It wasn't even salaried. It was just a better company for my resume. And, you know, honestly, I would have been fine to take it, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do. It was it was mostly a negotiation tactic more than anything else. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Great, great work on that. I'll have to put that one in my back <laughs> pocket uh, to use in the future. 
wow, so you just inherit a whole bunch of responsibility now on the marketing team. So you have both of the leads just say, hey, I'm out of here, Lauren. You're now going to manage all of this $5 million budget. What does that look like? I know we talked a lot about your, your previous role, but what does managing that level of budget for this company look like on a day-to-day basis? Honestly, it was just sinking a lot of money into both Google AdWords and into Facebook. And then there were also a lot of expensive technologies we were using along the way. Like for for example, Marketo is like one of the most costly marketing automation systems. Um, I was lucky enough to be partnering with an agency. So we had um, people at another company actually doing the day-to-day operations in both Facebook and AdWords for us. It was just my job to set the strategy and allocate the budget between those two um, ad platforms. And that part of it actually, like I found to be the easy and enjoyable part because it, it's, it's data driven. And so you, you're just reading the numbers, you're seeing which creatives perform well, what doesn't, you're pulling the things that don't work and then implementing more of the stuff that does and, you know, kind of iterating on that. So to me, it's an art and it's a science. And that's like where I've always enjoyed working. The really tricky part was the Marketo instance. It was built in a way that was really kind of clunky, like every single ad campaign, every single like individual ad had its own landing page. Um, So we had hundreds of landing pages floating out there and I had to find a way to like recall all of them and then like only launch like a handful to make sure everything was tracked properly. We knew which ads were converting, whether it was branded, non-branded and in AdWords, whether it was coming from Facebook. Um, so I was actually lucky to work with a really talented web developer and he showed me a lot of ways that we could basically use engineering to simplify that process, like very primitive marketing. Like if you want to have like the cleanest attribution possible, like, yes, you should have hundreds of landing pages out there. Great. Um, but to iterate and test across hundreds of landing pages is highly ineffective, um, and so we, we worked together to, you know, implement UTM parameters, to write webhooks, to do a bunch of creative stuff um, that was actually quite technical to kind of like rein in the system, simplify um, and understand performance better. So that was like the really, really daunting task. And honestly, it was daunting because a lot of it was very manual, repetitive and boring. Um, but then a lot of it was like being careful enough to make sure you don't get your wires crossed. Um, So that was like the tough part to start. And then the other end of that was like the whole engine was feeding into Salesforce and we had a huge Salesforce. We had like 200 reps or something crazy like that. We had um, a number of sales development reps who would basically receive all the inbound leads. And then it was their job to convert them and bring them over and into like a more senior account executive or into whoever was an inside sales and was going to handle the deal. Um, And the reps um, working with them actually taught me so much, like in a lot of ways, like I'm very grateful for the experience, but in a lot of ways, I'm also extremely horrified (laughs) about the experience because, um, you know, some of them were really kind, lovely people. And some of them were absolute pigs to be frank about it. Um, and you know, sometimes they would crack down they'd be like, where are my leads? I need hot leads. And they would say mean things like that. Um, but then other times they would make it personal and they would, uh, objectify the marketers in ways that were definitely not welcome. One thing that you, you know, you brought up earlier that you joined this company because there was a female CEO and your first manager was a female. And so now you're sort of indicating that, you know, there's that frat atmosphere within the sales team that, you know, it sounds like the complete opposite. When did you sort of go from like thinking, oh, this is a great like female empowered company to being a little bit more concerned about those attitudes? 
It honestly happened really quickly. Um, this company loved to have social events and they would have them pretty regularly, like definitely weekly happy hours, uh, monthly team outings. And I think it was the first team outing that I it really settled in for me. And this first team outing happened within my first week or two. And so they took us bowling in the Presidio. Um, and that sounds like a really fun, like wholesome kind of family oriented or team oriented event, right? Like what could possibly go wrong, right? It's just bowling in the afternoon. Um, but no, they started passing out tequila shots like sometime around like, I don't know, like sometime afternoon. And I just like remember going into the bathroom at like 3 or 4 p.m. And there are already girls like who have alcohol poisoning. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like it it was just really startling to think that I'd t- taken sort of what I thought to be like a business job, something that was like more about being in an office and being a professional and to have people like acting like they're still in college, like wasted. Um, that was really startling. And I think just to watch the interactions between the men and the women, like it, it didn't feel respectful. It didn't feel like professional. It did not feel safe. Um, so I think I learned like very, very early on that I needed to watch my back. And did management ever sort of address this sort of dynamic? Honestly, no, because management perpetuated the culture. I worked for a COO who had grabbed me by the arm one time, told me I needed to take a shot or my job might not be there the next day. Um, And it was just incidents like that. Like I was not an exception to the rule. This was fairly commonplace. Um, The female CEO, she didn't do anything to reprimand anyone. I think she actually, you know, was, was accused of engaging in certain behavior herself. Um, you know, who knows what is fact and what is fiction, but she didn't do anything to stand up for women in the workplace. And to me, that was one of the most horrifying parts of the experience there. Um, and the fact that the rest of the leadership was all male and the behavior came, you know, from the top down um, made it feel like not a very inclusive place to work. And did you, I mean, what were the discussions you had with your other female colleagues about this? So I had two female colleagues that I became extremely close with and am still friends with to this day. And a lot of it, like, all we could do was laugh, which is, like, honestly not what you should do. Um, But all we could do was laugh because, like, it was just – it was so horrifying. It was almost funny. Like, it was, like, something out of a book or a TV show or movie. Like, they literally could have had a reality TV show on this company. And I think, like, we just had to do our best to stick together and to stick up for each other. So that's what we did. And also by that same token, I have to say I worked on a marketing team um, that was kind of split, like creative and content on one side and um, data and technology on the other. And so I was the only female on the data and technology side. And uh, the three men that I worked with there, they were all like always like very lovely and supportive and like big brothers to me. So, I mean, there were some good people there, but it was just, you know, a lot of people in sales and some other parts of the organization, um, you know just doing things that are that are not uh, safe for work, I guess is, is how we would say it. Yeah. No, that, that's terrible. I'm sorry that you had to go through through all that. But I guess getting to the kind of economic side of it, when did you know, like, not only is this company culturally not a good place to work, but that the company wasn't necessarily going in a positive direction? I mean, so whether or not I knew that for sure was hard to say in the beginning because one, I was so young, I didn't really understand valuations and how all of these things mm-hmm. worked. Um, I didn't have access to a lot of the revenue numbers to start. 
Um, but I just thought it was bad because all I was hearing was the negative stories and the negative experiences. When you're dealing with client escalations, like there's very rarely a happy story where, you know, someone is loving the product and telling you about it. Nobody like writes a support line to tell you how pleased they are. Um, so to me, like, I just always thought it was a bad product from the start because I never got to hear any of the success stories, any of the positive testimonials. Um, you know, there are the few that they had kind of included in marketing assets, but those were so few and far between um, that, you know, I, I wasn't convinced that it would be a successful product um, after maybe a month or two of working there. I was, I was just kind of worried and wondering what I'd gotten myself into. It sounded like, you know, something that was so innovative and pretty progressive for the industry. Um, but, but it sounded like it was almost failing out in the field. No, that's definitely, I, I feel like the few times if you ever yelled at by a customer and when it's when most of your interactions, it's never, never a positive sign that things are going well. So what was your most memorable day at this company, either positive or negative? Oh my gosh, my most memorable day. That's hard to say. It feels like so long ago. I mean, I seem to remember pretty clearly like a few days of like working insane hours with some of my teammates. Um, we were there from nine to nine on certain days, just cranking through cases and just trying to solve as much as we could. And um, when you work with people on such challenging day-to-day -day issues, like you become pretty close and like pretty like reliant on each other. Um, and I don't know, I just remember kind of like laughing with these girls in between calls and like being in my early 20s and like just you know trying to make the most of like what wasn't an ideal situation um and then i think some of the other things i remember are the moments like you know when we got series c funding or the moments where we would have our holiday parties like th there were some good moments and some fun moments but again it's like hard to look back and like really pinpoint one specific thing that really stood out in the experience there when you got your company got the Series C funding, did you start to feel like, oh, maybe this company is making it, or like was that at the time like a very positive experience? Well, I think that's how it was kind of messaged to us, right? Like anytime you get a new round of funding, like it, it's always exciting, right? It means you have money in the bank and that the business has more runway to go on, and it definitely felt like something positive. But I think what I started to realize is that the money was coming from private equity. And the private equity firm was like slowly buying out the company from under the founders. And whenever there's a full on private equity takeover, that really turns the tide of a business, sometimes for the best and sometimes for the worst. Is that something that you thought at the time or only looking back now? I think looking back now, it's something that I'm more cognizant of, but it's something that I definitely realized because as soon as the funding closed, I forget if this was Series C or Series D. I was there for a while and saw a lot of cash be injected into the business. And part of me is like, oh, is this cash to keep the lights on? Or is this something because we did something right? So there was always that question in my head. Um, and, you know, once I got more into the demand gen world and was seeing the revenue numbers, like I was always kind of concerned. Um, and then ultimately, the two founders were, they left, they were bought out. And they brought in a new CEO and the new CEO beat to a very different tune. Like the look and the feel and the energy of the company completely changed. It became more corporate. There was still bad behavior, but it definitely became more straight laced, more corporate. They took away a lot of the fun perks. I think that people had come, become accustomed to and the leadership had become entirely white males for lack of a better 
phrase, right? And they just were all like tenured in their fields. They hadn't necessarily worked with restaurants or SMBs, so I don't think they fully grasped the end user. Um, but they were all they were all seasoned professionals, and it was kind of a boys' club. Um, so that was another interesting takeover moment and another interesting shift in my timeline of being there. And you know, like in some ways, it changed for the better because it felt more buttoned up. But in some ways, I feel like some of the energy that made Circle Circle was just it was gone. Two steps forward and then one and a half steps back. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It's hard when there's definitely some positive aspects of things being getting a little bit more grown up. But it's unfortunate that things definitely, especially with that leadership team, couldn't be more and more diverse um, and really make the company what, what it probably should be. Definitely. And it was a fairly diverse company when I started. People from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life, um, you know, a handful of female sales reps, which was always good to see. Definitely not enough. Um, but you know, there seemed to be like some of a, somewhat of a gender balance. And I, I think that was just kind of like snuffed out, um, as the private mm -hmm. equity money came in. So I guess going from there, what was the most ridiculous thing the company ever did during your time there? I, so it's interesting. Like we can talk about it from a business perspective of like, you know, some failed products, and then you can talk about it from different cultural moments where things just went totally awry. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, to focus on the business and the products, um, they tried to create a white label product. So essentially like creating, imagine like an Uber Eats or a DoorDash, but like white labeled just for your restaurant. Like they tried to build that and like, they just like knowing what I know now about product and about marketing and sales, like they just missed a million marks. And that it was just like such a big investment and just such a ridiculous sort of failure um, that I'm surprised that, you know, that even like had the level of investment and was brought to life in the way that it was. And I, I don't know, it just, it just seems super ridiculous and kind of, um, you know, smart in the sense that it was catering to, you know, the vertical we were seeing the most success in, but like ridiculous in the sense that it was not, a core competency and we had like no features or anything to support something of that nature. It was a swing and a miss. Gotcha. So a lot of investment in and just kind of just poor execution in, in the latter half of like not enough investment there. I think it was maybe just like not a really like thorough product plan around, around the app. I, I'm not really sure because I wasn't really in, involved in it. I just remember them like launching it, being so excited about it. And then like all of a sudden it just kind of like disappears and goes nowhere, which is always kind of a red flag. Um, there were another, a number of other features that were, you know, kind of half-baked or like poorly launched, like product marketing was never really a true function at this company, um, which is, is interesting because I've been at now uh, three technology companies and they've all been extremely late to develop the product marketing function, which is just kind of weird to see. It's like, you'll get a demand gen marketer before a product marketer, which, which almost doesn't really make sense. So I guess on the other side of that, what about culturally? What was the most ridiculous thing the company did from the culture perspective? We just used to have really excessive, lavish parties. Um, we rented out City Hall in San Francisco once for a party. They rented out like full party boats and yachts, um, just like sunk a lot of money into internal events. Um, rented out a nightclub once for a holiday party, um, just like very over the top just like a lot of alcohol, a lot of other substances, just like so, so, so out of control. Um, I feel like that was always like ridiculous. And like a lot of those parties felt like very glamorous and fun, but they were also 
again, like they shouldn't be work parties. Like <laughs> it was just, it was just like so obscene <laughs> to see leadership uh, just so intoxicated. And I, I don't know, I feel like there's always a, a very fine line and, you know, having like been at other companies where they take us out to hawk us on in Las Vegas until five in the morning, like, yes, these things happen, but I've never, I've still never seen things escalate to the level that they had at Circle. Did you have anyone on the leadership team or kind of mentor there that you felt like you had someone to vouch for you in some way? Or was it pretty much just you and your direct colleagues at that point, but no one up the chain? It's interesting because I had, I guess, three different managers over the span of my time at Circle. And so the first manager, I think she didn't really understand what we all needed from her as her employees, but she was fiercely protective, which was something that I always admired. So if a client was just giving us way too much of a hard time, she wasn't afraid to step in and help us out, help solve the problem or stick up for us when the going got rough. So that was something I respected. But in terms of my development, um, you know, wasn't exactly what I needed. My second manager, completely hands-off. He was just a marketing technology nerd, like really into what he did, really good at it. Um, But again, just like gave me the complete and total autonomy to kind of just do my thing and figure it out, Um, which I I kind of prefer to being micromanaged, which I have had at other points in my career. Um, And then my third manager, um, she didn't like me at first, and she made that quite clear. Um, She didn't like a lot of us. and she Yeah, she was very transparent about that. Um, but I think she like actually did take the time to get to know us and like figure out like what leadership style would work for everybody. And, um, I think she did advocate for each of us to the best of her ability, but it it was so hard because she herself barely felt like she had a seat at the table. Um, so that was, that was pretty challenging. But, um, what I liked about her is like, she wasn't afraid to call me on my shit. Like if I was doing something wrong or I could be doing something better, she wasn't afraid to tell me. Um, which I liked. I liked that she was blunt with me and that she didn't sugarcoat anything. Why do you feel she didn't like you? I think that, you know, it's hard to inherit a whole team. Like she, we were already fully assembled as a team before she got there. And I was like this like young hotshot at the company. Like I had a lot of responsibility for somebody who was very, very young. So I just kind of like thought I had my act together and was like, pretty proud of the work I was doing. And I was like, oh, I got this, like, whatever. Um, and I think like she was expecting a different personality from somebody like me. Um, and I think she was maybe just like taken aback and surprised that I was very headstrong and just was going to keep doing things my way. Um, and I just like remember being in a meeting with her once and she just looks at me point blank and she goes, who the hell do you think you are? Don Draper? This has to stop. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, that was, that was kind of a reality check, but also she's like, you know what? You're a free spirit. Just do your thing. And I remember when I quit, she's like, you're going to do big things. If you ever need a head of brand one day, you know who to call. And that really, that, that stuck with me and that meant a lot. So let's get over to your leaving circle. You mentioned sort of through the course of this discussion, how, you know, different things rubbed you wrong and how you, you know, at one point you got a counter offer just to, to try and get more out of the company. So you obviously had thought throughout your time there of leaving, what were, why did you start to actually get to that point of leaving? Like, what were the things that sort of tipped you over the edge? I think, you know, it was just total burnout and being uh, quite frankly fed up. And I I had tried to leave, like I said, multiple times, Um, but it was hard because I was 
green in my career and had no proven work experience. So you can't get another job without, you know, successfully doing the job you're in and having, you know, projects to speak to and things that you've accomplished. And so it took me, you know, a while to build up that body of work to be able to say, hey, here's what I've built. Here's what I've done. This is what I can do for you to make your company better. And so I didn't have that story yet. And so I finally got to the point where I felt like I could tell that story and I was developing my personal brand. Um, and so that's when I knew I could go look and I, I I kind of started to understand a bit more, you know, what I was worth and what I could start asking for and out at other companies. And um, I guess for me, I guess it was like the big turn in the leadership. I think we were about to move on to our third CEO and just nothing was nothing was improving. Nothing was getting better. And I just kind of felt like I gave the demand at Gen Engine everything I could. And um, you know, without having a bigger seat at the table, like there was not much more that I could do. Um, and then our, our team, which had grown also very, very close, like we're, we were each other's friends, each other's family, like a lot of us were East Coast transplants. So I don't know, we, we spent a lot, a lot of time together. Our team started to fall apart, like one by one, people were starting to leave. And so as soon as like, one of my closest colleagues um, decided he was leaving. I was like, all right, I guess this is my time now too. It was, it was only a matter of time. Like the way our director described it, she's like, I knew as soon as one person fell, all the rest of you dominoes were going to fall too. And it, it was a domino effect. I think there's only one person still there. And so when you started looking, what were you looking, you know, what, what opportunities were you trying to find? Um, so I knew I wanted to stay in demand generation because that had been serving me pretty well at Circle. And I was still passionate about the restaurant and hospitality world. I knew that was something that I wanted to stay in. Um, so I was looking for different tech companies that were doing things with restaurants, with hotels. Um, I even looked at real estate and co-working type businesses. Um, I just kind of like threw my darts wherever I could throw them. And actually, um, the manager actually came to me and found me on LinkedIn um, because somebody with my profile, I think at that point in time was pretty few and far between, um, people who had, you know, done operations work in hospitality, like new hotels, new restaurants, um, but also new tech and new marketing technology and demand gen infrastructure. Um, that was hard to find. So I guess, you know, they stumbled across my profile. We got to speaking and a couple months later I had the job and made the move. When you had that offer, did you consider trying to use it as leverage to get more out of Circle? Or were you, did you know you were gone? Oh, I knew I was gone. I also knew that they would never match the number that I'd gotten from this new company. Did When you told your manager that you were leaving, you already mentioned that you know she said, like, oh, I knew once one domino fell, everyone was going to go. Was there any surprise when you were leaving? Um, no, she was not surprised at all just because somebody else had quit before me. So she knew as soon as that person was gone, I would be soon after. And she literally said to me, she's like, I have to say this to you out of pro protocol, but I don't really think there's anything I can do. <laughs> Is there anything we can do to save you? <laughs> and I was like, well, mm -hmm. you're right, because no, there there is not. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I had made up my mind. I remember being like so nervous, the point of like almost being nauseous before I was telling her that I was going to quit because I'd never quit a job before. Like this was my first real job and I had been there over two years and I as much as I resented the company in a lot of ways, I like owe them so much for the experience that I gained there. And I was just like a ball of nerves and emotions. And so like quitting that job felt very, very profound. Like I still remember it. 
and I like still remember like which conference room I was in. I don't know. It was it was just like a very poignant experience, but I I knew there was no backing down. I like had made up my mind and I was not turning back. And how did your colleagues react to you leaving? No one was surprised. <laughs> they were like, I'm surprised this didn't happen months ago. <laughs> and so then I think, you know, the one question that we always like to end on is, you know, you've described like a very uh, robust experience at Circle. If, you know, if you could go back in time to Lauren, you know, uh, getting that job and moving out to San Francisco, is there anything that you would tell her? Would you tell her, like, don't, don't move, don't take that job, or would you have still done it? You know, it's hard to say because I just remember the first year being so miserable, but I think it was really character building for me. So I think, you know, if I could go back and give my younger self advice, I would say do it, throw yourself into it, appreciate this experience, work hard, play hard but don't do anything you're going to regret, um, which I honestly didn't at that company. I, I have no regrets about my experience there. I think I just, maybe it would have been nice to know what I was signing up for. Maybe there's a different company I would have gained a little bit more of a solid footing at, but I think that's the nature of being at a startup. Like it's that excitement. It's that unexpected sort of adventure you take yourself on with your career. And I I've always thrived in a bit of chaos. So I, I think I would have told myself like, go for it, work hard, and you're going to go places. Because honestly, until COVID-19 happened, like I had my dream job and I wouldn't have been there without the experience at Circle. That's great. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. It was so great chatting with you both. Wow. Another great episode. You know, that story took a lot of twists and turns I wasn't expecting. What stood out for you, Jake? Well, the first thing that stood out for me, you know, we sort of talked at the beginning about our first role out of college and not really, you know, one thing about your first real job is you just don't know how the, the work world works. And so, you know, Lauren talking about having these customers who hated her product and how uh, there was that churn. And, you know, I think now today, any of us, you know, Lauren or, or either of us would know like, oh, this is a horrible thing. But she sort of went with it for quite some time. I mean, I think that's the thing when you're new to the corporate workforce, you have no idea. Like I'm sure Lauren in her previous roles, when she was working at the restaurant, she had to deal with unhappy customers a lot of the time. But when you're dealing with unhappy customers at a restaurant, it's very different than dealing with them with a business you're trying to grow annual recurring revenue over if you're losing them every single time. And do you think that once that happened, she should have immediately left or because her first job, she should have stuck with it? Ooh. You know, I think when you're so new in your career, you have no option, but you kind of have to stick with it. Just as I think Lauren knew this, you have to build that story of you did something at this company. You didn't just join and quit right off the bat. Uh, unless you quit on day one, you're kind of stuck and locked in because then you have to go back to all these other recruiters. It, you just kind of get locked in. Then there's not much you can do. You got to see what happens, at least for a year or so. Yep. Were there other things that really stood out for you? You know, I think that, you know, this thing resonated with me a lot was just as companies become more corporate, you lose a lot of kind of the the culture of the company uh, in some good ways and some bad ways. But I definitely know the fact of, you know, you have kind of the suits come in and you lose a lot of, a little bit of, a lot of the pizzazz that made the company the company. You know, you have those people who work at the company who don't like structure, uh, like to kind of approach problems in their own kind of crazy way, even though it might not be operationally efficient, 
And you kind of lose those people, although they're a lot of fun to work with um, and can come up with great ideas. They're not usually the best for kind of the corporate world uh, when the company's grown to that level. Yeah, it, it's like growing up that, you know, when you're in high school, you do, you and your friends do crazy things. And then, you know, you become an adult and you've got responsibilities and then you, you take a more buttoned up approach to things. And I think that's what we sort of see with uh, her company that as it was growing uh, and they, you know, they brought in these outsiders, they became a little bit more straight laced. So even though the company got more buttoned up over time, Jake, it seemed like the parties were still wild and crazy. But, you know, with tech companies, everyone is, feels obligated to throw a party. And, you know, there's also this escalation of parties. Like, it's not enough to have, you know, at first it's like, oh, you have beer in your office. Then it's like, oh, we had a happy hour in a bar. And it's like we have a happy hour on a boat that goes around the bay and just escalates and escalates. And there is this culture within the tech companies of you you have to serve alcohol to your employees and you have to do it in a in a way that they'll remember. It's like, you know, weddings getting out of hand. It's the same thing with uh, with company parties. Oh, yeah. And, you know, during the holiday season, all the tech employees are comparing their holiday party to everyone else's holiday party and saying, like, why doesn't management care more enough about us to, like, let us go on a boat around the bay? Why do we only get a small little room at a restaurant? Well, the, there, why... there is the fear, like, oh, last year we were on a boat in the bay, and now we just have a small room in the restaurant. Is the company not doing as well as we were last year? That's a totally fair point. And it just becomes kind of a sinkhole in money and company parties are fun though. That is a big thing that people do like parties. So it, it's, uh, and it's a great way to get to know your colleagues. Like normally you're just talking to them about work stuff and you had to have those experiences, you know, you're, you're not even a drinker. I'm mean, <laughs> sorry to make it sound yeah. like so bad, uh, but even as someone who doesn't drink, you still find a, you get a lot of bonding out of those, those times when you're mm-hmm. away from your desk and away from a meeting room. Yeah, you do. You know, and I think about my career, I think a lot of the moments I remember is hanging out with my coworkers at the bar, going on walks around different cities, uh, all those crazy things that build up such great memories. And unfortunately, sometimes they just get out of hand and those memories are not good and they're, they're bad for the company. And they're bad for the people working there. Um, it, it's a hard topic. I don't know how you fix that. Right. Because, I mean, you know, the reason why they're so fun is, you know, you have a few drinks, you loosen up. But of course, uh, when alcohol is involved, people do tend to overdrink sometimes. I'm certainly guilty of it as, as much as anyone else. And when people drink too much, their behavior just can sometimes be completely inappropriate. And as we heard today from Lauren, it can make uh, other employees feel very uncomfortable. Uh, so how can you have that balance of getting people loose, but not um, you know, inconsiderate of others? Yeah. And I think the big thing there, Jake, is we're not going to solve it talking just me and you here. But I think the big thing is, number one thing you can do as a person is just focus on how you can be a better person and being an ally to people in the workplace um, and making sure you're making a safe and inclusive environment. Uh, So we found some links below that I included in the show notes on how to be a better ally to women in the workplace, uh, particularly if you're a straight white male, such as Jake and myself. So definitely check those out if you want to make yourself a better ally in the workplace. And uh, with that, that's the end of the episode. So Uh, Thanks for listening and stay tuned in the near future. We'll have episode eight out.